Come, Holy Spirit, and touch my lips. Come, Holy Spirit, and illuminate our minds. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill our hearts with love for you. Amen. When I was teaching small children, each autumn they would come to school bearing gifts of cones and conkers for me. And the autumn corner would gradually expand as each day it was added to. Of course, the game of conkers had been banned from the playground by now, but that didn't stop the children, usually the boys, it has to be said, from bringing their prize finds, sometimes hanging on a string and sometimes just as a talisman in their trouser pockets to compare with one another and to lovingly look at. Sometimes their pockets or book bags would bulge with the beautiful shiny brown seeds. They just couldn't go past them on the way to and from school without picking them up. In fact, you could say they were passionate about the conkers. Life wouldn't be the same without them. The hardest lesson, therefore, for these four-year-olds to learn as they adjusted to the rigours of school life I'll never forget one little boy standing there looking at me and saying, you mean I have to come back tomorrow as well? It was only Monday. Was that there was only a season for these conkers. They wouldn't be there forever. However much they wanted it to happen, the trees would eventually stop dropping their gifts. They were staggered to find out that actually conkers were seeds. So I suggested we plant one, but which one? It took some deciding, but eventually a conquer was found. It wasn't the biggest or the shiniest. It wasn't the hardest or the brownest. In fact, it wasn't the best at all. It was the only one they could just about bear to let go, bear to sacrifice. This one could be buried in the ground. This one could be allowed to split and die. The amazing thing was that the following spring, they remembered the old conker and watched as small shoots pushed up through the ground. If no one has dug it up, then today it might be a small tree producing many more horse chestnuts. But what on earth has all of that got to do with Greeks wishing to see Jesus, thunder rolling round the heavens, life and death, servants and masters, light and darkness? One word everything. For this is how Jesus spoke about his own death, and this is how he begins to answer Andrew and Philip when they come to tell him of the Greeks searching for him. He doesn't, as so many times before, answer them with anything straightforward, like, how wonderful, bring them here and I'll talk to them, but instead goes into a verily I tell thee moment showing very clearly how it is that God will save the world through the death of Jesus. It will be like the sowing of a seed into the ground. It will look like tragedy, the large-scale, fully-grown version of the tiny tragedy that a small boy feels when he's asked to choose one of his conkers to plant in the ground and never see again. Except this time, the seed that will die isn't the least, but is the best. And there won't be just one season for this seed. This seed will continue to give forever. 
this seed will be seen again. Because this seed, the seed that is about to die, is God himself. The seed that is about to die is the one who spoke the words of life in the first place. The seed that is about to die is the one who will hold us in his gentle arms at the end of this life and welcome us home. The seed that is about to die is the one who has healed, preached and taught amongst the ordinary people. The seed that is about to die will open those loving arms and healing hands and surrender them to the nails that will split the seed. The seed that is about to die is your best friend and mine too. Now the time has come. We have at last arrived at the moment the whole of Jesus' life has been moving towards. There will be no more, my time hasn't yet come, as he spoke to Mary at Cana. This time they will arrest him, he won't escape, because his time has come. The time when the preparation has been completed and the great event, the final moment of love and liberation has to take place. The fact that Greeks, foreigners, are asking to see him here in Jerusalem functions as a sign, like the first leaf of spring, functions as a sign for Jesus that his time has come, the hour is now. It shows us where we are on God's timetable of events. And how was Jesus then feeling at this point when he recognises this sign? Proud that he'd got to this point finally? Probably not. Exhilarated? Possibly, because he knows that finally the glory will be revealed. But that's not the first thing John tells us ready to meet the moment with his head held high, having done the work of God. Eventually, maybe. But again, that isn't the word John uses. Troubled is the word that John uses. Yes, that's right. The word made flesh the one in whom the Father's own love and power was truly seen, the one who healed the sick, turned water into wine, opened blind eyes and raised Lazarus to life, is troubled, deeply troubled, troubled right down to his heart, his heart that was made of flesh, his heart that beats the same as yours and mine his heart that feels what we feel, his heart that wept for his friends, for Jerusalem, for the pain of the world, his heart that had the greatest passion for each one of us, his human heart and his divine heart. For Jesus in this moment is human flesh flesh that shrinks from suffering, as we all might. 
You think of the last year, of all the suffering that we have watched, experienced ourselves, been part of. As we've watched statistics go up and down. As we've heard stories of friends and family or strangers and the way in which pandemic and suffering has hit so many. We remember today on Passion Sunday, this hour, the hour that Jesus recognises is the hour where things are about to turn. That suffering that will come on Good Friday and in the days beforehand are now going to have to be lived out. Jesus perhaps wants to see if there's a different way. Surely there must be another way. Surely God wouldn't expect him to go through suffering just to show eternal love. That doesn't make any sense at all. And for some of us at the moment, those questions are on our lips. What's the point in believing in God at all when we look around a world full of suffering? Obviously, Jesus being lifted high hasn't drawn all people to himself because we're still living in that suffering world. But Jesus knows there is no other way. He has to become the high priest now. The high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The tradition was that each year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the very centre of the temple, to the Holy of Holies, and only he would be able to offer sacrifice for all the people outside. The people were not able to approach the Holy of Holies and certainly were never allowed in. In fact, the priest would go in only once he had a rope tied around him so that if anything happened to him whilst he was there, he could be pulled out with anyone, without anyone else needing to enter. And in those days, the priest was a male. Jesus now becomes the high priest who will offer sacrifice for the people's sin, but this time, it will be the last time. There, this time, there will be no need for additional sacrifice afterwards. This time, the high priest will belong to everyone, the Greeks, the Jews, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, and everyone will see him lifted high and will be drawn to this extraordinary, abundant, proliferate love, a love that is passionate beyond everything and anything else that might exist in this world. The glory of God, strangely, is to be seen in Jesus on the cross. And the love of God's children is all that matters now to Jesus. Jesus is totally committed to doing whatever is necessary to bring that glory about, 
He has come all this way, prepared the ground, spoken of the Father's will, and of how the world is to be saved. Is he now going to ask for a change of plan? His troubled heart knows there is danger ahead, but it also knows that it is through that danger, rather than sidling safely past, that the glory will shine out to the whole world. Father, glorify your name. That is the prayer that gets answered by thunder. God has glorified his name. He's done so already in Jesus' extraordinary public career, in his mighty and loving works, and he will do so again. He will glorify his name because those who have usurped God's rule in the world, those who have laid it waste and trampled on the poor and exalted themselves as kings, lords, and even gods, all of them, through the death of Jesus on the cross, and eventually the resurrection, are going to be condemned. But the victory would look very different. It was all about being lifted up, exalted on a pole, like the serpent in the wilderness. That's how the world would be rescued. That's how God, the true God, the God of astonishing, generous love, would be glorified. Swords don't glorify the creator God. Love does. Self-giving love, best of all. Easter is my favourite time of year. But each time I find these last couple of weeks very difficult because it means a journey to somewhere I don't want to go. It means a journey back to the cross again, to stand and really look at the pain and the horror, the suffering of the world. It means a journey back to where I watched the man I love hanging in agony. It means a journey to the place where I begin to realise a little bit more each year how much I am loved. And it means a journey to the place from where I know I cannot come back the same. It means going through the pain of standing, watching, loving and bearing, knowing that it is for me that he is nailed there. It is a place where I have to bury the best seed ever. It is somewhere I don't want to go, but it is somewhere I know I have to go if I am to know the depth of his love for me and the wonderful freedom that Easter Day will bring. These next two weeks might be an even greater poignant journey for us this year as we have to not sidle past the suffering in the world, but walk in those footsteps of Jesus, looking with our eyes open and our ears unstopped, and recognising that when we do look, when we truly stand at the foot of the cross, and look at what has been done for you and for me. We can never turn away and be the same again. 
because we take all of the suffering in our own lives and in the life of the wider world to the foot of that cross. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus takes it, the seed split, so that new life might come. So in these next two weeks, I want to encourage you to walk that journey to the cross. Perhaps through prayer and reading of scripture, perhaps through listening to music, art, walking where we are able to walk at the moment. Just taking some proper time to reflect upon this last year, particularly, but upon the whole of our life and what we might be bringing to the foot of the cross for Jesus this year. And I want to encourage you that in the journeying can be found the new life, the life that Jesus has for each of us. And no, it's not always easy. But that was never the promise. The promise was of love and life in all its fullness. That whatever comes, God is in it. Amen.